0: Section four of Three Essays on Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Three Essays on Religion by John Stuart Mill. Nature, part four. Let us next consider a quality which forms the most visible and one of the most radical of the moral distinctions between human beings and most of the lower animals, that of which the absence, more than of anything else, renders men bestial. THE QUALITY OF CLEANLINESS Can anything be more entirely artificial? Children, and the lower classes of most countries, seem to be actually fond of dirt. The vast majority of the human race are indifferent to it. Whole nations of otherwise civilized and cultivated human beings, tolerated in some of its worst forms, and only a very small minority are consistently offended by it. Indeed, the universal law of the subject appears to be that uncleanliness offends only those to whom it is unfamiliar, so that those who have lived in so artificial a state as to be unused to it in any form are the sole persons whom it disgusts in all forms. Of all virtues— this is the most evidently not instinctive but a triumph over instinct assuredly neither cleanliness nor the love of cleanliness is natural to man but only the capacity of acquiring a love of cleanliness our examples have thus far been taken from the personal or as they are called by bentham the self-regarding virtues because these if any might be supposed to be congenial even to the uncultivated mind of the social virtues it is almost superfluous to speak so completely is it the verdict of all experience that selfishness is natural. By this, I do not in any wise mean to deny that sympathy is natural also. I believe, on the contrary, that on that important fact rests the possibility of any cultivation of goodness and nobleness, and the hope of their ultimate entire ascendancy. But sympathetic characters, left uncultivated and given up to their sympathetic instincts, are as selfish as others. The difference is in the kind of selfishness, Theirs is not solitary, but sympathetic selfishness. L'egoisme a deux, a trois, or a quatre, and they may be very amiable and delightful to those with whom they sympathise, and grossly unjust and unfeeling to the rest of the world. Indeed, the finer nervous organisms, which are most capable of and most require sympathy, have, from their fineness, so much stronger impulses of all sorts, that they often furnish the most striking examples of selfishness, though of a less repulsive kind than that of colder natures whether there ever was a person in whom apart from all teaching of instructors friends or books and from all intentional self-modelling according to an ideal natural benevolence was a more powerful attribute than selfishness in any of its forms may remain undecided that such cases are extremely rare every one must admit and this is enough for the argument but to speak no further of self-control for the benefit of others the commonest self-control for one's own benefit that power of sacrificing a present desire to a distant object or a general purpose which is indispensable for making the actions of the individual accord with his own notions of his individual good even this is most unnatural to the undisciplined human being as may be seen by the long apprenticeships which children serve to it the very imperfect manner in which it is acquired by persons born to power whose will is seldom resisted, and by all who have been early and much indulged, and the marked absence of the quality in savages, in soldiers and sailors, and in a somewhat less degree, in nearly the whole of the poorer classes, and this in many other countries. The principal difference, on the point under consideration, between this virtue and others, is that although, like them, it requires a course of teaching, it is more susceptible than most of them of being self-taught. The axiom is trite that self control is only learnt by experience, and this endowment is only thus much nearer to being natural than the others we have spoken of, inasmuch as personal experience, without external inculcation, has a certain tendency to engender it. Nature does not of herself bestow this any more than other virtues, but nature often administers the rewards and punishments which cultivate it and which in other cases have to be created artificially for the express purpose. Veracity might seem, of all virtues, to have the most plausible claim to being natural, since in the absence of motives to the contrary, speech usually conforms to, or at least does not intentionally deviate, from fact. Accordingly, this is the virtue with which writers like Rousseau delight in decorating savage life, and setting it in advantageous contrast with the treachery and trickery of civilization unfortunately this is a mere fancy picture contradicted by all the realities of savage life savages are always liars they have not the faintest notion of truth as a virtue they have a notion of not betraying to their hurt as of not hurting in any other way persons to whom they are bound by some special tie of obligation their chief their guest perhaps or their friend these feelings of obligation being the taught morality of the savage state growing out of its characteristic circumstances but of any point of honour respecting truth for truth's sake, they have not the remotest idea, no more than the whole East and the greater part of Europe, and in the few countries which are sufficiently improved to have such a point of honour. It is confined to a small minority, who alone, under any circumstances of real temptation, practice it. From the general use of the expression natural justice, it must be presumed that justice is a virtue generally thought to be directly implanted by nature, I believe, however, that the sentiment of justice is entirely of artificial origin, the idea of natural justice not preceding but following that of conventional justice. The farther we look back into the early modes of thinking of the human race, which we consider ancient times, including those of the Old Testament, or the portions of mankind who are still in no more advanced a condition than that of ancient times, the more completely do we find men's notion of justice defined and bounded by the express appointment of law. A man's just rights meant the rights which the law gave him a just man was he who never infringed nor sought to infringe the legal property or other legal rights of others the notion of a higher justice to which laws themselves are amenable and by which the conscience is bound without a positive prescription of law is a later extension of the idea suggested by and following the analogy of legal justice to which it maintains a parallel direction through all the shades and varieties of the sentiment, and from which it borrows nearly the whole of its phraseology. The very words, justice, and justitia, are derived from just, law. Courts of justice, administration of justice, always mean the tribunals. If it be said that there must be the germs of all these virtues in human nature, otherwise mankind would be incapable of acquiring them, I am ready with a certain amount of explanation to admit the fact but the weeds that dispute the ground with these beneficent germs are themselves not germs but rankly luxuriant growths and would in all but some one case in a thousand entirely stifle and destroy the former were it not so strongly the interest of mankind to cherish the good germs in one another that they always do so in as far as their degree of intelligence in this as in other respects still very imperfect allows it is through such fostering commenced early and not counteracted by unfavourable influences that in some happily circumstanced specimens of the human race the most elevated sentiments of which humanity is capable become a second nature stronger than the first and not so much subduing the original nature as merging it into itself even those gifted organizations which have attained the like excellency by self-culture Owed essentially to the same cause. For what self-culture would be possible, without aid from the general sentiment of mankind, delivered through books, and from the contemplation of exalted characters, real or ideal? This artificially created, or at least artificially perfected, nature of the best and noblest human beings is the only nature which is ever commendable to follow. It is almost superfluous to say that even this cannot be erected into a standard of conduct, since it is itself the fruit of a training and culture, the choice of which, if rational and not accidental, must have been determined by a standard already chosen. This brief survey is amply sufficient to prove that the duty of man is the same in respect to his own nature as in respect to the nature of all other things, namely, not to follow but to amend it. Some people, however, do not attempt to deny that instinct ought to be subordinate to reason, pay deference to nature so far as to maintain that every natural inclination must have some sphere of action granted to it, some opening left for its gratification. All natural wishes, they say, must have been implanted for a purpose, and this argument is carried so far that we often hear it maintained that every wish, which it is supposed to be natural to entertain, must have a corresponding provision in the order of the universe for its gratification." insomuch for instance that the desire of an indefinite prolongation of existence is believed by many to be itself a sufficient proof of the reality of a future life i conceive that there is a radical absurdity in all these attempts to discover in detail what are the designs of providence in order when they are discovered to help providence in bringing them about those who argue from particular indications that providence intends this or that either believe that the creator can do all that he will or that he cannot. If the first supposition is adopted, if providence is omnipotent, providence intends whatever happens, and the fact of its happening proves that providence intended it. If so, everything which a human being can do is predestined by providence, and is a fulfillment of its designs. But if, as is the more religious theory, providence intends not all which happens, but only what is good, then indeed man has it in his power, by his voluntary action, to aid the intentions of providence but he can only learn those intentions by considering what tends to promote the general good, and not what man has a natural inclination to. For, limited as, on this showing, the divine power must be, by inscrutable but insurmountable obstacles, who knows that man could have been created without desires which never are to be, and even which never ought to be fulfilled. The inclinations with which man has been endowed as well as any of the other contrivances which we observe in nature, may be the expression, not of the divine will, but of the fetters which impede its reaction, and to take hints from these for the guidance of our own conduct may be falling into a trap laid by the enemy. The assumption that everything which infinite goodness can desire actually comes to pass in this universe, or at least that we must never say or suppose that it does not, is worthy only of those whose slavish fears make them offer the homage of lies to a being who, they profess to think, is incapable of being deceived, and holds all falsehood an abomination. With regard to this particular hypothesis, that all natural impulses are propensities sufficiently universal and sufficiently spontaneous to be capable of passing for instincts, must exist for good ends, and ought to be only regulated, not repressed, this is, of course, true of the majority of them, for the species could not have continued to exist unless most of its inclinations had been directed to things needful or useful for its preservation. But unless the instincts can be reduced to a very small number indeed, it must be allowed that we have also bad instincts, which it should be the aim of education not simply to regulate, but to extirpate, or rather, what can be done even to an instinct, to starve them by disuse those who are inclined to multiply the number of instincts usually include among them one which they call destructiveness an instinct to destroy for destruction's sake i can conceive no good reason for preserving this no more than another property which if not an instinct is a very like one what has been called the instinct of domination a delight in exercising despotism and holding other beings in subjection to our will The man who takes pleasure in the mere exertion of authority, apart from the purpose for which it is to be employed, is the last person in whose hands one would willingly entrust it. Again, there are persons who are cruel by character, or as the phrase is, naturally cruel, who have a real pleasure in inflicting or seeing the infliction of pain. This kind of cruelty is not mere hard-hearted absence of pity or remorse, it is a positive thing, a particular kind of voluptuous excitement." the East and Southern Europe, have afforded, and probably still afford, abundant examples of this hateful propensity. I suppose it would be granted that this is not one of the natural inclinations that it would be wrong to suppress. The only question would be whether it is not a duty to suppress the man himself along with it. But even if it were true that every one of the elementary impulses of human nature has its good side, and may by a sufficient amount of artificial training be made more useful than hurtful, How little would this amount to, when it must in any case be admitted, that without such training, all of them, even those which are necessary to our preservation, would fill the world with misery, making human life an exaggerated likeness of the odious scene of violence and tyranny which is exhibited by the rest of the animal kingdom, except in so far as tamed and disciplined by man. There, indeed, those who flatter themselves with the notion of reading the purposes of the Creator in His works— ought in consistency to have seen grounds for inferences from which they have shrunk if there are any marks at all of special design in creation one of the things most evidently designed is that a large proportion of all animals should pass their existence in tormenting and devouring other animals they have been lavishly fitted out with the instruments necessary for that purpose their strongest instincts impel them to it and many of them seem to have been constructed incapable of supporting themselves by any other food if a tenth part of the pains which have been expended in finding benevolent adaptations in all nature had been employed in collecting evidence to blacken the character of the creator what scope for comment would not have been found in the entire existence of the lower animals divided with scarcely an exception into devourers and devoured and a prey to a thousand ills from which they are denied the faculties necessary for protecting themselves If we are not obliged to believe the animal creation to be the work of a demon, it is because we need not suppose it to have been made by a being of infinite power. But if imitation of the Creator's will, as revealed in nature, were applied as a rule of action in this case, the most atrocious enormities of the worst men would be more than justified by the apparent intention of the providence that throughout all animated nature the strong should prey upon the weak. The preceding observations are far from having exhausted the almost infinite variety of modes and occasions in which the idea of conformity to nature is introduced as an element into the ethical appreciation of actions and dispositions. The same favourable prejudgment follows the word nature through the numerous acceptations in which it is employed as a distinctive term for certain parts of the constitution of humanity, as contrasted with other parts. We have hitherto confined ourselves to one of these affectations, in which it stands as a general designation for those parts of our mental and moral constitution which are supposed to be innate, in contradistinction to those which are acquired, as when nature is contrasted with education, or when a savage state without laws, arts, or knowledge is called a state of nature, or when the question is asked whether benevolence or the moral sentiment is natural or acquired, or whether some persons— are poets or orators by nature and others not but in another and more lax sense any manifestations by human beings are often termed natural when it is merely intended to say that they are not studied or designedly assumed in the particular case and when a person is said to move or speak with natural grace or when it is said that a person's natural manner or character is so and so meaning that it is so when he does not attempt to control or disguise it in a still looser acceptation, A person is said to be naturally that which he was, until some special cause had acted upon him, or which it is supposed he would be, if some such cause were withdrawn. Thus a person is said to be naturally dull, but to have made himself intelligent by study and perseverance, to be naturally cheerful, but soured by misfortune, naturally ambitious, but kept down by want of opportunity. Finally the word natural applied to feelings or conduct often seems to mean no more than that they are such as are ordinarily found in human beings as when it is said that a person acted on some particular occasion as it was natural to do or that to be affected in a particular way by some sight or sound or thought or incident in life is perfectly natural in all these senses of the term the quality called natural is very often confessedly a worse quality than the one contrasted with it but whenever its being so is not too obvious to be questioned the idea seems to be entertained by describing it as natural something has been said amounting to a considerable presumption in its favour for my part i can perceive only one sense in which nature or naturalness in a human being are really terms of praise and then the praise is only negative namely when used to denote the absence of affectation affectation may be defined the effort to appear what one is not when the motive or the occasion is not such as either to excuse the attempt, or to stamp it with the more odious name of hypocrisy. It must be added that the deception is often attempted to be practised on the deceiver himself as well as on others. He imitates the external signs of qualities which he would like to have, and hopes to persuade himself that he has them. Whether in the form of deception, or of self-deception, or of something hovering between the two, affectation is very rightly accounted a reproach, and naturalness, understood as the reverse of affectation, a merit. But a more proper term, by which to express this estimable quality, would be sincerity, a term which has fallen from its original elevated meaning, and popularly denotes only a subordinate branch of the cardinal virtue, at once designated as a whole. Sometimes also, in cases where the term affectation would be inappropriate, since the conduct or demeanour spoken of is really praiseworthy, people say in disparagement of the person concerned that such conduct or demeanour is not natural to him, and make uncomplimentary comparisons between him and some other person to whom it is natural, meaning that what in the one seemed excellent was the effect of temporary excitement or of a great victory over himself, while in the other it is the result to be expected for the habitual character. This mode of speech is not open to censure, since nature is here simply a term for the person's ordinary disposition, and if he is praised, it is not for being natural, but for being naturally good. Conformity to nature has no connection whatever with right and wrong. The idea can never be fitly introduced into ethical discussions at all, except occasionally and partially into the question of degrees of culpability. To illustrate this point, let us consider the phrase, by which the greatest intensity of condemnatory feeling is conveyed in connection with the idea of nature the word unnatural that a thing is unnatural in any precise meaning which can be attached to the word is no argument for its being blamable since the most criminal actions are to a being like man not more unnatural than most of the virtues the acquisition of virtue has in all ages been accounted a work of labour and difficulty while the dissensus averni on the contrary, is of proverbial facility, and it assuredly requires in most persons a greater conquest over a greater number of natural inclinations to become eminently virtuous than transcendently vicious. But if an action or an inclination has been decided on other grounds to be blamable, it may be a circumstance in aggravation that it is unnatural, that is, repugnant to some strong feeling usually found in human beings since the bad propensity whatever it be has afforded evidence of being both strong and deeply rooted by having overcome that repugnance this presumption of course fails if the individual has never had the repugnance and the argument therefore is not fit to be urged unless the feeling which is violated by the act is not only justifiable and reasonable but is one which it is blamable to be without the corresponding plea in extenuation of a culpable act because it was natural or because it was prompted by a natural feeling Never, I think, ought to be admitted. There is hardly a bad action ever perpetrated which is not perfectly natural, and the motives to which are not perfectly natural feelings. In the eye of reason, therefore, this is no excuse. But it is quite natural that it should be so in the eyes of the multitude, because the meaning of the expression is that they have a fellow feeling with the offender. When they say that something which they cannot help admitting to be blamable is nevertheless natural, they mean that they can imagine the possibility of their being themselves tempted to commit it. Most people have a considerable amount of indulgence towards all acts of which they feel a possible source within themselves, reserving their rigour for those which, though perhaps really less bad, they cannot in any way understand how it is possible to commit. If an action convinces them, which it often does, on very inadequate grounds, that the person who does it must be a being totally unlike themselves, They are seldom particular in examining the precise degree of blame due to it, or even if the blame is properly due to it at all. They measure the degree of guilt by the strength of their antipathy, and hence differences of opinion, and even differences of taste, have been objects of as intense moral abhorrence as the most atrocious crimes. It will be useful to sum up in a few words the leading conclusions of this essay. The word nature has two principal meanings. It either denotes the entire system of things, with the aggregate of all their properties, or it denotes things as they would be, apart from human intervention. In the first of these senses, the doctrine that man ought to follow nature is unmeaning, since man has no power to do anything else than follow nature. All his actions are done, through, and in obedience to, some, one, or many of nature's physical or mental laws. In the other sense of the term, the doctrine that man ought to follow nature, or, in other words, or to make the spontaneous course of things the model of his voluntary actions, is equally irrational and immoral. Irrational because all human action, whatever, consists in altering, and all useful action in improving, the spontaneous course of nature. Immoral because the course of natural phenomena, being replete with everything which, when committed by human beings, is most worthy of abhorrence, Anyone who endeavoured in his actions to imitate the natural course of things would be universally seen and acknowledged to be the wickedest of men. The scheme of nature, regarded in its whole extent, cannot have had, for its sole or even principal object, the good of human or other sentient beings. What good it brings to them is mostly the result of their own exertions. Whatsoever in nature gives indication of beneficent design, proves this beneficence to be armed only with limited power. And the duty of man is to cooperate with the beneficent powers, not by imitating, but by perpetually striving to amend the course of nature, and bringing that part of it over which he can exercise control more nearly into conformity with a high standard of justice and goodness. End of Nature Part four Recording by Sunny SHIELDS Doha State of Qatar Christmas Day twenty eleven.